this morning, we're talking about a, here's a little segue for you, we're talking about a love story, <laughs> a love story. And some of the most compelling, interesting love stories are set uh, against the backdrop of danger and darkness and even hatred sometimes. There's movies where in a, in a war movie, right in the middle of a war, there's two people falling in love with each other or uh, the apocalypse is happening and yet somehow there's a love story emerging or someone is very sick and yet they love each other. And these are movies and stories that we love because there's something about a love story set against the backdrop of despair and darkness that kind of makes the love story shine even brighter. Maybe the most iconic example is Romeo and Juliet where you have these two families that hate each other and are murdering one another and yet right in the middle of the story is this this tragic love story. Or to bring it up to date, maybe, uh, or a little bit closer up to date, Titanic, right? Uh, as a ship is sinking, Jack and Rose are in love with each other right up until the moment where all she needs to do is scoot over a little so he can get on the door <laughs> with her. And then the love story ends. <laughs> we like to have a glimmer of hope in hopeless times. And as we move into the last three chapters of Matthew, Matthew's chapter 26, 27, and 28 is going to get dark. Um, the beginning of Matthew chapter 26 is filled with uh, murderous intent, controlling greed, intense hatred, and heartbreaking betrayal. Dark times. But right in the middle of the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, there's a love story. And this morning, I want us to look at this love story. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, it says this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. For Je but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this morning, I want us to notice three things. I want us to notice this woman's love for Jesus. I want us to notice Jesus' love for this woman. And then lastly, I want us to notice Jesus' love for you. So first, this woman's love for Jesus. Who is this woman? Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are different accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all four Gospels have some version of this story. It needs to be pointed out that Luke's version is actually a different event. If, you, if you're ever reading Luke's version, you're like, this doesn't coincide with Matthew, Mark, and John. He's talking about a different woman, a different time, a different event. But Matthew, Mark, and John are basically describing the same event. And in Matthew and in Mark, she is nameless. We don't know who she is, but John, in John chapter 12, we learn that this woman's name is Mary. And specifically, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. And what we know about this woman is that she's a close friend. She's a dear friend of Jesus. She is a disciple of Jesus. She is a follower of Jesus. She is a financial supporter of the ministry of Jesus. 
And what did she pour on Jesus in this story? In, in, in Matthew, it says the word ointment. Now, it was, it was from a flask, and this flask was a sealed container uh, that was made out of Egyptian white opaque stone, and it was filled with this expensive ointment that is called nard in Mark's account. Nard was this ointment that was made from the root of a Himalayan plant that was found in India, and it had a very strong fragrance. When she poured it, it would have filled the whole room with the smell. In Mark's account, the word nard is, uh, there's an adjective attached to it, and it's the adjective pure, which implies this is a trustworthy quality. This is not fake. This is not a ripoff. She didn't buy this in a back alley in Manhattan. Like, this is the real deal. This is egg from a shell, not a carton, right? This is milk from a cow, not an almond, amen? Uh, this, is, uh, this, is, uh, this is thick slab bacon, not that flimsy, fake, pretending to be turkey bacon, it's the real deal. And in John's account, we learn how much he poured. It contained a whole pound, a whole pound of this precious ointment. It was likely a family heirloom that had been passed down, and maybe it was even her marriage dowry that she was supposed to use someday. The value of it, scholars say, would be the equivalent today of anywhere from thirty to $40,000 poured out on Jesus. Now, how did she pour it? And there's two things we have to notice the word pour in the Greek is actually a verb that's often used to talk about anointing, but not anointing kings, anointing corpses. See, in that time, they would, after someone died, to give them a proper burial, they would anoint them with ointments and spices in a way of preserving them so they would not corrupt and decay quickly, and it was sort of a, it was a proper thing. The burial rites and the right way of being buried was very important at this time. And here she is, pouring over Jesus this ointment, but the Greek word that the gospel writers use indicates that this is the ointment that is poured over someone when they are dead. And one of the building questions in the gospel of Matthew is, is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? And the word Messiah means that he is the anointed one. So here she is anointing him, indicating that he is the Messiah, but Jesus, as he is finally being anointed, he is not being anointed like a king for a coronation, but he's being anointed like a corpse for a burial. And the other thing that we need to notice is the way she poured it. Now, one of my favorite things when I go to dinner with friends is I love going to restaurants that is family style. You know what family style is? Family style means we all share, right? We order lots of stuff. I love sharing because I like to try lots of different things. My nightmare is going to a restaurant with people and everybody orders the same dish because I want to try different things. And, and so I like to share, but I've learned about myself that sometimes I'm, I'm stingy with my sharing based on what it is, <laughs> how much I love it how much I value it, how little I have of it, I'm stingy. There's other things I'm very generous with. You want my broccoli? Here, take it all, right? But scallops, I'm going to just cut you a little sliver, right? Lamb chops, don't even ask, right? So there's, there's certain ways in which I feel very generous, and there's certain ways in which I feel uh, a little stingy. What we know about the way that she poured this, specifically from Mark's account, Mark said that she broke the flask. Now, earlier I said this was a sealed flask. So this was not something that you would unscrew the top of it and just pour a little bit out and then save the rest. The only way to get the ointment out of this thing was to break the actual flask. And once the slender neck of what would have been like a teardrop-shaped container was snapped off, the whole contents would have been poured out. She could not control how much was going to be spent at that point. Once she did this, she was all in. 
She had to give everything. It speaks to the totality of what she does here. Once opened, it could not be resealed. It was the point of no return. And what we see here is that she was all in. She was fully committed to giving everything to Jesus. You know what this speaks of? It speaks of extravagant worship and devotion. That we would be fully and totally, that we, our lives, would be willing to be broken and poured out and spent so that the fragrance of our lives would fill every room that we walk into so that people might see Jesus for who he truly is, the Messiah, the one who's come, the anointed one. When I talk about extravagant worship and devotion, there's two dangers, and one of the dangers is this. When I say the word worship, if you've been in church a long time, you immediately think singing. Okay, extravagant worship means singing really loud and singing for a really long time. But worship is so much more than singing. The word worship simply means worth-ship. Where do you direct worth and value? What means the most to you? What is your greatest value? What's your treasure in life? What do you place your trust in? And so when we talk about extravagant worship, we're not just talking about standing up, clapping our hands, and singing as loud as we can and as long as we can, although that's a wonderful way of expressing worship to Jesus. What we're talking about, how, is, how are our lives Monday through Saturday? What about our lives indicates extravagant devotion and worship? What about us? So this woman loves Jesus. Second thing, let's look at Jesus' love for this woman. Now, that, since we know she's married, we know, some th- we know some things about her relationship with Jesus up until this point. How has Jesus loved Mary? Well, Mary has seen Jesus' ministry, his miracles and his signs and his wonders. He's loved her by bringing her into his group of people who follow him and are walking with him and seeing what he's doing. She's heard him teach, and he's loved her through his teachings about the kingdom and giving her truth and insight into his heart and into his ways. There's something really interesting at the beginning of this story. The man who hosts this dinner party, they call him Simon the leper. Simon the leper. And what most biblical scholars say is that Simon previously would have been a leper who Jesus healed. And here's the greatest sort of unexpected event at this time and in this culture is that a leper would be hosting a dinner party. Because lepers, not only were they not allowed to mingle and live in the village or among other people, they had to go outside of the village, outside of the city. They had to live in leper colonies. And if anyone who was clean came near them, they would have to scream out, unclean, unclean, stay away. And yet here, Simon the leper in Bethany is hosting a dinner party. Most likely, Simon is Mary's friend. And so how did Jesus love Mary? He healed her friend. He changed her friend's life. He was lost He was hopeless. Here he is doing something that he never would have dreamed possible, hosting a dinner party. And then also, how has Jesus loved Mary? She's living with an everyday example of how much he loves her with her brother Lazarus. Lazarus was a man who died, and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This amazing story in John chapter 11. So Jesus has loved her, but on this night, he loves her in three very specific ways. Number one, he defended her. Did you notice that? He defended her. At a time in society where the imbalance of power and status and value and worth between men and women was disgusting and gross, and and women would not have been able in these situations to speak up often for themselves, when a group of men, especially the 12 disciples who were respected and had some level of power, began to critique her, no one else in that room but Jesus was going to speak up on this woman's behalf. And yet Jesus defended her and said, how dare you? Don't speak of her this way, what she's done for me is beautiful. Jesus defended her. 
Secondly, Jesus went beyond defending her and he praised her. Uh, One of the commentaries said this, Jesus prophesies about this woman. Did you notice that? He said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you're going to hear this story about what she did. Here's what one of the commentators said. This prophecy of Jesus about this woman is receiving a fulfillment every day before our eyes. Even this morning, this prophecy is being fulfilled as we talk about this woman. Whenever and wherever the gospel of Matthew is read, her action is known. The deeds and titles of many kings and emperors and generals have been completely forgotten as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded in 150 different languages. But although the gospel of Matthew specifically has actually been translated into over 2,300 different languages. And this story is known all over the globe. So Jesus praised her by saying, for the rest of time, people are going to know about what you did. He defended her. He praised her. And it's not in this text, but it's implied in this text. How did he love Mary? He died for her. He said, you're anointing me for my burial. Now, whether Mary understood what that meant or what she was doing, I think maybe she had some sense because Jesus had been very, uh, he'd been very explicit with him. He had told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. The disciples, the men, kind of slow, they didn't get it. I sort of think maybe the women, specifically Mary, maybe had a better sense of what was happening here. But whether she knew for sure what she was doing, the significance of what she was doing or not, Jesus knew the significance of what she was doing. He said, you're anointing me for my burial because when you're crucified as a a prisoner of Rome, when you're executed upon a cross, there's no proper burial for you. They're not anointing you. They're just throwing you into a trash heap. Jesus here is anointed for his burial. Jesus is saying to Mary, what you're doing is a, is a going ahead of what I'm about to do for you. I'm going to die for you. So he defended her. He praised her. He died for her. And what's interesting is that Jesus loves her here the same way that he loves you and me. He defends us. He speaks for us before the Father. His righteousness, his goodness, his perfect performance record speaks for you and me. He encourages us and praises, praises us through his spirit who dwells within believers, encouraging us and strengthening us and reminding us of who we are in Christ. And he died for us. He gave his life for us, Jesus' love for this woman. And because Mary knew how much Jesus loved her, Mary's act here, her love is a response and our act is always a response to, our, to Jesus' love for us. Pay close attention to what's happening in your heart when you think about Jesus. Pay close attention to what's happening in your heart when you read about Jesus, learn about Jesus, sing about Jesus, hear a message about Jesus. What is your response? Even this morning, what's happening in your heart? Because whatever your response is to Jesus is directly connected to who you think he is. And how you see him. See, Mary saw the beauty in Jesus and other people weren't seeing it. Who do you see Jesus to be? Many people in our world see Jesus to be a nice guy. He's just a good guy. He did some good things. Or a good teacher. He had some wisdom. And I like some of his sayings. And put them on a shirt and I'll wear them. Some of them think of Jesus as just a great example. He did things well. Or Jesus is a get out of jail free, a get out of hell free card. Jesus is someone who came to earth to make you happy and healthy and wealthy. But Say whatever you want, but the clearest indicator of who you actually believe Jesus to be is seen in how you respond to him and how you respond to him with what is most valuable to you. Nothing in this woman's life in terms of material possessions was more valuable to her than this flask, and yet she broke it and spent it. 
for Jesus in an act of extravagant worship and devotion? What's most valuable to you in your life? Your relationships, your career, your being respected, being known, your independence, control, power, uh, pleasure, escape, comfort, security. What's most valuable to you? And then how do you respond to Jesus with those things? See, true worship, when we truly worship Jesus and adore him in an extravagant way, it will always seem wasteful to other people. People won't get it. What? You, you give of your time, talent, and treasure through a church to a church? What? You don't sleep in on Sundays. You get up and you go and you sit in a service. What? You don't do these things. You don't do those things. You live this way. True worship will always seem wasteful to others, but it will always be beautiful to Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. What she's done is beautiful to me. And listen, this is true of whatever you worship. You might be thinking, well, this is maybe just for people who go to church. No, like there are people in my neighborhood who I'm pretty sure they worship their yard. (laughs) I mean, the amount of time they spend on their lawns is like mind-blowing to me. And it seems, if I'm being honest, wasteful. Like, you know, there's, leaves are going to come again. Like, you know, like, it, it's going to be all right. But, and, but they, some people love, that, that gives them maybe a feeling of control in a world where they don't have control. They can control the, the, the height of their grass. Maybe it gives them a feeling of respect or accomplishment or whatever it is. Of course, it's not a bad thing to keep your, your yard nice. My point is, is that when someone worships it to the point where they obsess about it and they're extravagant in their devotion to their lawn, to me, on an outsider who I've not been captured by that beauty... I'm like, this seems really wasteful. Weird little hobbies, things that people collect, things that people give all their time and money to do. Like when it's something that you are on the inside of, it always appears wasteful, right? Same here. Until you've seen the beauty of Jesus, when other people are extravagant in their worship and devotion to Jesus, it's just not going to make sense to you. You're going to say, oh, let's be measured here in how devoted we are to Jesus. Let's, let's be reasonable about this. And yet when you've seen the beauty of Jesus, those things go out the window and it's extravagant worship. I mean, look at the response of the men in the room. It says that they were indignant. And the Greek word indicates there that they snorted their indignation like an angry horse. Think of how humiliating this was for poor Mary, who had done this act of worship, and now she's being collectively rebuked by Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And part of the reason that they they justified their complaint was because this is right before the Passover, and it was customary to give gifts on the evening of Passover to the poor. And this would have been a remarkable gift, $30,000 worth of gift to the poor. But the disciples don't really care about the poor here. They care about themselves. They care about the fact that maybe she's outdoing them right now by her radical generosity, or maybe they're thinking about how they could have personally profited from the sale of the pure nard. It's important for us to notice, by the way, when we move through this passage, Jesus isn't speaking down on the poor at all. He's not saying we shouldn't take care of the poor. He cares very much about the poor. What he's saying here is that there's certain moments when specific behavior is okay, and you will always have opportunities to care for the poor, and you should. But Mary recognizes this moment and you're all missing it. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is saying, you always have the poor, but this is a special moment. So this is Jesus' love for Mary. But as we finish, this is not just a love story between Mary and Jesus. This is a love story that you and I are invited into. Let's finish by talking about Jesus' love for you. In verse 13, Jesus said, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me up here. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, we're going to talk about this woman for all of time. You know what this means, or you know what I think this might mean? That in this moment back then, 2,000 years ago, in this house of Simon the leper in Bethany, in that moment, Jesus was already thinking about this moment right now, in this building, in this place. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about people that in the future would hear the gospel preached, hear the gospel proclaimed. Jesus is not just in love with Mary. He's in love with humankind. He's come not just to serve some, but to serve all and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the gospel here that he talks about is the good news of Jesus, what he's done and who he is, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And his death now, we're in Matthew 26, we're headed towards the cross. Next Sunday, we'll be talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then on Good Friday, we'll be talking about Jesus on the cross. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, we get to Matthew 28, and we'll talk about the empty tomb. But right now, Jesus is right on the doorstep of his death. And he's thinking about his love for Mary and his love for you and me. Jesus knows what's coming. We know he knows what's coming because he talked about it so many times. And yet he continues to move with resolute determination toward the cross. This is how much he loves you and me. So my question for you this morning is, how do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Do you see his love for you? And how do you respond? Another way of asking all those questions is this. Is your relationship with Jesus a love story? Is it a love story? That might be weird to think about, but that's what, we, that's what we have to consider. Do I love him? Do I understand how much he loves me? Have I received all of that? I want to finish with this. One of my favorite takes on this story comes from a book called Jesus of Theography by Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. And he talks about this story and he talks about the sense of smelling. Because that smell, that pure nard would have filled the room. And he writes this, at birth, the mechanism of the nose is capable of already detecting and identifying 10,000 different scents. The odor receptors of the nose are more sophisticated and complex than the eye or the ear. Of all our sense organs, the nose is the one that connects fastest to the brain. There is an immediate link between nose and brain. Odor information works on the brain directly, unlike the indirect route taken by auditory hearing it and visual seeing it. And fragrance, fragrances affect our moods. The sense of smell is wired in the brain to our emotions. The sense of smell is a trigger for memory. In fact, smell is the most powerful releaser of memory. Nothing can bring back a time, a place, or an emotion better than an aroma. Now, what does this mean for this story? Well, ancient Israelites at this time, they didn't take baths every day. It wasn't available to them, to them the way it is available to you and me. They washed their hands before every meal, but they did not wash their body, bodies very frequently. And this anointing in Bethany happened just two days before the Passover, two nights, two days before the Passover, the night on which Jesus was betrayed. It's highly unlikely that Jesus washed his body between this moment and his suffering. So what it means is this, that every moment for the rest of this story, Matthew 26, 27, and 28, every step the rest of the way, Jesus can smell the perfume. 
when he's arrested in the garden and given over by one of his close friends, Judas, he can smell the perfume. When he's unfairly tried before the Sanhedrin, he can smell the perfume. When he's mocked and slapped and blindfolded and spit upon, he can smell the perfume. When he's whipped and beaten and the crown of thorns is pushed upon his head, he can smell the perfume. When he's carrying a cross up a hill, he can smell the perfume. When the nails are driven into his wrists, into his feet, he can smell the perfume. And when he's dying for the world, he could smell the perfume. See, this world could strip Jesus of his basic rights. They could strip Jesus of his innocence, strip him of his clothes, strip him of his dignities, strip him of his skin, his blood, and his life. But they could not strip the smell of the worship of someone who loved him off of him. Jesus came into this world smelling barnyard smells like straw, hay, animals, animal feces, and stinky shepherds. But Jesus left this world smelling perfume. Why? Because one woman saw what no one else saw. She saw his love for her. And so her response was deep love for him. This is a love story. And this is the story that we're invited into. Let's pray together.